How are we doing? So glad to hear that. Uh, up on the screen, I've got a picture of the governor of Virginia. He's in hot water. <laughs> Y'all been paying attention to the news lately, but uh, he made this comment preceding some of the hot water that he got into. And here's his comment. He said the infant would be delivered. The infant would be, would be kept comfortable. Here he's talking about the process of abortion. He said the infant would be resuscitated. So he's talking about the baby has literally come out, is now into the world, uh, and that, if that's what the mother and the family desired. And then a discussion would ensue between the physician and the mother. So the mother has delivered the child, and the governor says that then we would have a discussion about whether or not to take the life of that baby. Um, the topic of abortion has been in news headlines a lot lately. And as I know I wrapped up the series last week, but I have been thinking about talking about this topic months back ago and decided, you know what, I'm going to tag it on here at the end of our series, All Men Are Created Equal. And so we're going to talk about the topic of abortion today. I want to just go ahead and let you know I'll tell the truth, but I'm also going to talk about it with great grace. So expect both truth and God's great grace. Um, our title for today is Grace Greater Than. Um, our, t- our, our text comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Uh, We'll be reading verses 9 through 11, just a little bit of background of this text. You can see a map here, and you can see Corinth. Immediately north of Corinth is the uh, nation of Greece. This is um, a little peninsula that comes down into the Mediterranean Sea. The Mediterranean Sea is going to be south. This is a coastal city, and you can imagine being a coastal city, that it's a place where there's a lot of sailors coming through. There's a lot of depravity. There's a lot of immorality that's taking place in this town of Corinth. And Paul goes to this town, and he has converts to Christianity, and he plants a church there in Corinth, and this church has been misbehaving. They've needed some direction, some theological instruction. And so Paul sends them one of two letters. And so we're going to be reading from one of those two letters. It's the first letter that he sends to the Corinthians. I'm going to ask for you to stand to your feet, as is our tradition here, for the reading of God's Word. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, we'll be reading verses 9 through 11. Here we go. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. You may be seated. Um, You're saying, what in the world does that have to do with the topic of abortion? Well, we're getting there, but let's first walk through these verses together, okay? Let's begin at verse 9. Paul writes, he says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. And then he lists off a whole bunch of different folks here who he says are not going to inherit the kingdom of God. He's talking about heaven here. That's what he has in view. He says, these people are not going to go to heaven. He says, neither the sexually immoral, the idolater, the adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, verse 10, not thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And you can see this list that I've created for you here of all these different categories of people who are involved in different sin practices, and that runs, runs kind of a gamut there that you see. And so uh, you can, and so Paul's saying to the Corinthian, you know, the Corinthian, first century Corinthian who's reading this says, yeah, we've got a lot of these kind of people in our town, and we can see where these people would not be able to make it into heaven. And so uh, Paul uses these examples as obvious examples, at least to the people of Paul's day, at least to the Corinthians living in Corinth, of people who are living uh, depraved lives, of people who are involved in and engaged in sinful behavior. I mean, they're drunkards, they're revilers, they're greedy, they're thieves, they're all these different sorts of things. 
that are on that list. And then Paul says at the beginning of verse 9, he says that these people will be excluded from the kingdom of God. And then he says at the end of this list of verses, to make the point, at the end of verse 10, he says, and these people will not inherit the kingdom of God. That is that they will not go to heaven. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking to yourself, I'm not on that list. So am I good to go? I mean, am, am, I, am I good for heaven? Is that, is that all that is required? Well, elsewhere in Scripture, Paul says, Romans chapter 3 and verse 23, for all have sinned and what? Fall short of the glory of God. So Paul says, hey, uh, in case you thought because you're not on that list that you're okay, that everything's golden for you, Paul says, hey, I got news for you. If you've ever sinned in your life, which we all have, there's only been one perfect person, and that perfect person left the earth 2,000 years ago, that we all fall into this bucket of people who will not inherit the kingdom of God. We all fall in this bucket of people who will not be able to make it to heaven based on the merit of our own good morals and philanthropy. There's only one way to make it into heaven, and that's through the blood of the Lord Jesus. We'll get to that in just a little bit. Unfortunately, this passage, though, has been misused by Christians down through the centuries because they look at this list and they say, hey, look, if you're on that list, then the Bible says you're not going to go to heaven. But we're missing the purpose of the list. The purpose of the list is not to list out the people who are in and the people who are out, the people who are toast and the people who are dandy, right? The purpose of the list is not to say that if you're on it, you're toast. If you're on it, you're in or you're out. The purpose of the list is to for the, for the Corinthians to be able to identify and say, hey, you know what, there are people in our community that are living far from God, and we can, that we can see clearly that these people are living far from God based on their activity, based on their behavior. That's the purpose of the list. Paul then goes on to say, verse 11, such were some of you. Now note that these are people who are in the church. These are Christians that Paul's writing to, and he's saying some of y'all used to be on that list. Some of y'all maybe still are on that list, but you've got the blood of Jesus applied to your life. He's forgiven you of your sins. You're working through your sin problem. You're working through your behavior problem, but you've got Jesus in your life now. And that's the wonderful news, friends, that even the worst among the Corinthian Christians are now part of the family of God. Even the ones who were drifted furthest from the straight and narrow have now become part of the church and are walking with the Lord. Such were some of you. You say, well, Gordon, that's really great that these folks have turned their lives around, but I mean, how does that happen? I'd like to know, right? Because I, I mean, I, maybe I've been on that list before. Maybe I'm still struggling with some stuff on that list. How do, how do I get my life turned around? How do they get their life turned around? Well, hang with me because I'm going to tell you at the end of the sermon today. So got like 15 minutes here before we get to the end of that, but just hang in there because we're going to get to that here at the end. I want to completely switch gears now, and I want to dive into this subject of abortion, okay? I want to dive into this subject. And um, I want to talk to you a little bit about that. Suppose your kid was to walk into the kitchen, and you're standing at the, at the kitchen uh, sink, and you're washing some dishes, you got your back turned, and they walk in, and you hear, can I kill it? And immediately you think, kill what? Right? Are we talking about an aunt? Are we talking about your little sister? Right? What are, we, what are we talking about here when you're asking, can you kill it? Friends, that is the central question when we're talking about the subject of abortion that we have to answer. All the other questions are peripheral. All the other questions are, in many ways, political. Um, the central question, the foundational question is, what is it that we are attempting or wanting to kill? Because if it's a human being, a living human being, then of course, of course, you cannot kill it. But if this thing that you're talking about is not a human being, if it's just a tumor, then go for it. Of course you can kill it. It doesn't matter. So the central question, the fundamental question when we talk about the issue of abortion is what is this thing that's inside of a mother's womb? Is it a whole living human being or not? 
All right, well, I want to answer that question using three different fields of study. First, I want to talk about it from a theological perspective. In other words, I want to give you what the Bible has to say to that question of what it is. And secondly, I want to give you what science has to say, what, en- what embryologists have taught us about what it is. And then thirdly, I want to just give you a philosophical argument, a logical argument about what this is and forming in a mother's womb. First, the biblical argument it comes from Psalm chapter 139. You're probably familiar with these verses. It says, verse 13, for you, God, form, this is the psalmist David talking here to the Lord. He says, for you, God, form me in my inmost parts. You knitted me together. Here comes the key verse, in my mother's womb. The perspective of the Bible is that life begins at conception is that life begins at conception, that David in his mother's womb was not an it to God, but that he was a formed human being whom God knew and anticipated him entering into the world. The prophet Jeremiah sees life in the womb the same way. Jeremiah chapter 1 and verse 4, God is speaking to Jeremiah, and he says, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, and before you were born, I consecrated you. Jeremiah in his pre-born state, God says, I knew you. I consecrated you. You were a real person. And finally, in Luke's gospel, he records a meeting between two pregnant women. Mary, the mother of Jesus, is one of them. She's just gotten pregnant. And then also her cousin, aunt, somebody's going to correct me on that a little bit later, but um, Elizabeth, who is be the mother of John the Baptist, who was already six months pregnant. So these two ladies enter into and meet one another, have a, have a meeting. And so Luke chapter 1 and verse 41 records that. It says, when Elizabeth who is six months pregnant, heard the greeting of Mary. The baby leaped in her womb, in Elizabeth's womb, verse 44. She said to Mary, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, get this, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Friends, tumors don't experience joy. People do. The opinion of the Bible, and there are many other examples of life like this, that this is just, and this is just a sampling, the opinion of the Bible is that life begins at conception. So that's what the Bible teaches. What about what science has to say to this issue? Embryologists Moore and Persaud, both pro-choice advocates. I'm only quoting from pro-choice advocates here today, just to make a point. Um, Embryologists Moore and Persaud write, the zygote is the beginning of a new human being. Human Human development begins at fertilization, the process during which a male gamete or sperm unites with a female gamete or oocyte to form a single-celled zygote. Just to be clear, a zygote is the very early stage, the initial stage of a human being forming in a mother's womb. When the sperm meets the egg, you got a zygote. All right, that's what that is. Um, Here's another quote from the field of embryology. This is from David Boone, and also a pro-choice advocate. He says, Um, Even he recognizes the scientific perspective. He says, a human fetus, after all, is simply a human being at a very early stage in his or her development. Did you get that? He's saying that that even a pro-choice guy recognizes what it is that we're destroying in a mother's womb, that this is a human being. So let's think about that for just a second. Each of you, me, we're all at one time a zygote. How we got here, right? We're a zygote. Um, we were an embryo. We were a fetus at one time. We were birthed out into the world, and we grew up and matured the way we are today. You didn't become a human being when you were born. You became a human being when the sperm and the egg met, just like you were once a teenager, just like you were once a toddler. 
you were once a zygote. And when a woman gets pregnant, there is a new human body developing inside of her. That's what the unborn is. That is what science confirms. That is what science tells us. That is what an ultrasound reveals, that this is a living human being residing inside of a mother's womb. Okay, so we know what the Bible has to say. We know what science has to say. Now let me give you the philosophical or the logical argument. Um, there are three qualities of an unborn person. Uh, one is that they're living. One is that they're human. And one is that they're whole. So let's kind of walk through those. This is our philosophical argument. Our first one is that, that what's in the mother's womb is living. It is alive. That This little person is alive. Seems pretty obvious, you know, doesn't it? This is a living thing because dead things don't grow, right? So this is a living human being. That's what this is. That's just the nature of life that dead things don't grow. The embryo is a living thing. It is alive. It is growing. The former president of Planned Parenthood, Faye Waddleton, she said, and I quote, I'm quoting from the former president of Planned Parenthood, okay? Here's what she had to say. Here's what she recognized. I think we delude ourselves into believing that people don't know that abortion is killing he recognizes that this is not a tumor. He recognizes that this is something that is alive. So one of the qualities that an embryo has is that it's alive, it's living. Second quality that every unborn baby has is that it is human. Again, it seems kind of funny to have to acknowledge this, right? We're not talking about a gerbil. Right? We're not talking about monkeys. We're talking about a human being. That's what's developing inside of a mother's womb. Some people say, well, they look kind of funny at that age. Well, you know, we look funny at many different stages in our human development, right? I mean, I got hair that's starting to grow out of my ears, and I'm wondering, you know, what's up with that? Um, you know, when the baby first comes out, out of the womb, you know, she's got, he or she's got like cone head thing going on, right? I mean, we look funny at all kinds of different stages of our lives. It has human DNA, and this growing living thing has its own genetic fingerprint. That unique DNA belongs to this zygote. It belongs to this embryo, to this unborn human being. Peter Singer is an ethicist at Princeton University. It's so sad because he defends pro-choice. He believes that this is a human being that we're killing, and he also defends infanticide. So you wonder where this guy, this governor of Virginia, got these ideas of taking a baby out of the womb and then taking its life. Gets it from guys like Peter Singer who are professors at places like Princeton University. The guy's cuckoo for Cocoa Puff. But nevertheless, even he gets it. He understands what's going on here. He writes, it is possible to give human, the term human being a precise meaning. We can use it as the equivalent of a member of the group Homo sapiens, whether a being as a member of a certain species is something we can determine scientifically. He concludes from this sense, there is no doubt, he says, no doubt that from the first moment of conception, a human being conceived from human sperm and egg is a human being. That's what's in the mother's womb. Friends, from the conception of life all the way down, you are a human being no matter what stage of development you're in. Third quality that this every unborn living baby uh, experiences is one, they're living, second, they're human, and third, that they are whole. It is a whole human being, as in it is complete. Now, there are arguments that pop up about this and say, no, it's not. No, it's not. That baby's in, in full development mode, but it hadn't developed yet. Okay, well, that seems like a logical argument. I mean, we might think of a 25-year-old man as being fully developed, right? But does that mean that that 25-year-old that man was three years old or was 10 years old, that he was not a whole human being? We don't kill our three-year-olds. We don't discard our 10-year-olds and say that they're not because they're not whole human beings yet. 
No, that being in a mother's womb is whole. It is complete. It just hasn't developed all the way out yet. There's a difference between being whole and having all the different stuff that you need in order to become fully developed. There's a difference between being whole and being all the way developed. There's a, um, so an infant is a very small human being who hasn't completed its development yet, but they're complete in structure. They have everything that's required. Um, here's another quote from Bernard Nathanson. He's co-founder of the largest abortion advocacy group in the world. Um, total pro-choice advocate guy. Here's what he writes. There's simply no doubt that even the early embryo is a human being. All of its genetic coding and features are indisputably human. As to the being, there is no doubt what exists is alive. It is self-directed. It's growing of its own accord, right? It's sending itself toward growth the way it is designed, and not the same being as the mother, and it is therefore a unified whole. Do you see what he's saying here? He's saying that the unborn baby is a living human being, and so that answers the question, what is it? Can I kill it? Well, what is it? The Bible confirms. Science confirms. Pro-choice advocates confirm. Logical argument confirms that what it is is a human being. Well, now that we've been informed biblically, scientifically, and philosophically, you say, well, what do I do with all this, right? What difference does any of this make to my life today? That's a great question. I got two things for you, and then I'll be done. First difference that this makes, here it is. Remember that slide that we looked at earlier with all the sins from Paul listed off, verses 9 and 10 of 1 Corinthians 6? What belongs on that list, friends, is abortion. One of the things that our generation should be able to look at and say, without any doubt, without any doubt, killing of a baby in the womb of a mother, that's wrong. And so, friends, the first thing, the first difference this makes to your life and mine is to say abortion is wrong. Um, to think anything else is to not be informed, like to twist the argument, is to ignore logical data, right? <clears throat> Follow my logic here. If it's wrong to intentionally kill an innocent human being, right? Wrong to kill an innocent human being. We would all agree on that. We, need to go, we don't need to go there. To that, right? We can all agree on that. It's, if it's logical, if, it, if, it's, if it's wrong to kill an innocent human being, and I don't think any of us would object to that, and abortion intentionally kills an innocent human being, then abortion is wrong. It belongs on the list. Now, maybe that's a tough one to admit because it hits home. Maybe you had a girlfriend years ago that you pushed to go and have an abortion, and you paid for that abortion. So it's difficult to admit that abortion is wrong. Maybe you were that girlfriend who was pushed, and you gave in to the pressure, and you were scared, and you didn't know what to do. And so you went forward with that. It's difficult to admit that abortion is wrong. Maybe you're entrenched in some political position. But friends, what's the central question? Can I kill it? We see what it is. We see what it is. And we have to say abortion is wrong. You know, um, when I look back over my own family's history, um, my grandfather, my mom, she grew up in North Carolina and uh, in the South, true South. 
And my grandfather, I heard him say some things back when I was growing up that I thought, boy, he certainly doesn't like certain kinds of people. <laughs> and just leave that up to your imagination, okay? Um, and he would just let it fly, right? He was raised in the South, raised in that culture, in that part of the South, that he would just let it fly. And um, I look back on that, and he was a good church-going man, loved the Lord, raised his family in church. But on that issue, I think to myself, what were you thinking? Why, why didn't you get this? Why did, you, why did you look at people that way? Why did you hold them as a lesser than than you? Friends, I think a generation from now, our kids and our grandkids are going to look back on America who has now taken the lives of over 40 million children since Roe v. Wade. And we're, they're going to ask, what were you thinking? What were you thinking? How barbaric. It's a living human being whole. Of course you can't kill it. Of course you can't kill it. Second difference that this makes to your life and to mine. Number two and finally is to recognize the grace of God. Paul said, such were some of you. I've sat in my office. I've had people as a pastor come to me and say, I've had this thing I've just been holding on to for 20 years, 40 years, and more. I can't forgive myself. Friends, what does the Bible have to say? Such were some of you. Which means that being on the list, being on the list does not Exclude you from the kingdom of God. Being on the list does not disqualify you from experiencing the forgiveness and the healing and the restoration and the invitation into the family of God, which means, friends, that there is no sin. There's nothing on that list that is greater than the power of the cross. Jesus paid it all. Jesus forgives it all. Friends, if you're struggling with forgiveness, Jesus is here to offer forgiveness to you. Forgiveness means that God is never going to bring it up again. Isn't that wonderful? Once forgiven, tossed into the deepest, darkest depths of the sea, never to be raised again. When you get to heaven, God's not going to say, hey, you remember when? No. It's forgiven. It's forgotten. You say, Gordon, I want that. Boy, do I want that. I want that healing. I want that forgiveness that Jesus offers. Well, 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 11 tells us how. It says, and such were some of you, but here's what's different. You've been washed. You were washed. You were sanctified. Sanctified means that you were set on the process toward Christian maturity says you were justified. Justified means that you were acquitted of all charges, that God no longer holds your sin guilt over your head. He will allow you to come into heaven. He says, I give you the pardon. My dad's back there raising his hand. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that wonderful? That he pardoned you. You're no longer, longer guilty. He's forgiven. 
He's forgiven it all. And friends, how did that happen? It happened in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Friends, notice something. It says that you were washed. You were sanctified. You didn't do it. You didn't do it for you. You didn't make yourself whole. It says you were justified. Jesus' blood on the cross is what allowed that to happen. It wasn't because you brought to God all the good things that you've done in your life. It wasn't because you brought to God this list of good and bad, and hopefully the good outweighs the bad. It's because of what Jesus did on the cross for you, friends. He paid the price for your sins and mine. Grace, God's grace is greater than all, all of your sin. Friends, that is the gospel. That's the gospel. Putting your trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins and the power to live the Christian life. You know, in just a few moments, we're going to share uh, communion. And today we're doing things a little bit differently. We're going to invite you to come up here to the front. Our ushers will direct you. Um, when you come, there's a cup. There's bread. You'll be given bread. You'll take the bread. You'll dip it in the cup. And then you'll make your way back to your seat. I'm asking for us to do communion this way today because I want for you to come and symbolically receive what Jesus did for you. I want for you to experience his grace through communion. I want you to experience and receive the forgiveness that he offers you as you come to this table. I'm going to invite at this time those who are going to be serving the elements to come forward. Two of our ushers will be coming forward. I'm going to invite them to come. If you cannot come up to the front because just walking up here is going to be difficult for you, our ushers will be keeping an eye out for you. They will bring the communion elements to you after everyone else has been served. Let's bow our heads together for a word of prayer. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your truth. We don't shy away from it. Acknowledging your standards, acknowledging your holiness, acknowledging that we have fallen short of that, part of coming into a relationship with you. And Lord, the benefit that we get from admitting our sin guilt and turning to you and trusting in your blood that you shed on the cross, the result of that is forgiveness. We'll show up at heaven one day wondering, do we still remember? And Lord, you will embrace us in your arms. Forgiveness for you is to forget, to hold it against us no more. Lord, as we gather around this table, we're reminded of your broken body, of your shed blood. And we come today, Lord, to receive, to Experience again, fresh and new, your grace and your forgiveness. Lord, we come to the table. In Christ's holy name, amen.